recorded live. This show is brought to you by TalkShoe, where anyone can create their own internet talk show. Check it out at T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com. Welcome to IAQ Radio. have changed. Good afternoon and welcome to IAQ Radio. I am Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. My co-host here is Cliff Zlotnick in the studio and we've got our able assistants here, Cyber Jockey and H-Dog helping us along. Our show is brought to you today by Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com Microband Systems the microbial management people at microbandsystems.com and the IAQ Training Institute for indoor air quality training you trust available at iaqtraining.com We have a great deal of uh, things to do today with a lot happening and three great guests I am uh, looking forward to this show, and I know my co-host, Cliff, is also looking forward to the show. First, I'd like to quickly go over how to contact us if you're interested in either calling in or sending an instant message. This show is live on every Friday at noon Eastern Time. It is a lot more fun and more interesting when you text us questions or call in. If you want to call in live... Sign up on the TalkShoe website. That's TalkShoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E. Get yourself a PIN number and then dial 724-444-7444. The show ID is 1517. Or if you want to text a question live, download the TalkShoe software and start typing. And if you want to get a hold of us between episodes, feel free to email info at iaqtraining.com or joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Real quick, we'd like to go over the really simple and basic rules of the show. Number one, remember, what you say here may live forever. Number two, and this goes out to my Loving wife, she uh, reminds me to try and be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. A quote from Plato. And lastly, my quote is, protect yourself at all times. Now back to your corners. Today's guests are Nick Money, a professor of uh, the Department of Botany 
at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and author of Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, A Natural History of Toxic Mold. Glenn Feldman, owner of Indoor Environment Connections and the executive director of the Indoor Air Quality Association. And Tom Yacobellis, the founder of Ductbusters, which has now merged into Duct Z, making it the largest duct cleaning firm in the United States with close to 50 offices. All right, let's get started with our first guest. If we can see if uh, Nick Money is on the line. Nick, are you there? Yep, hi, Joe. Nick Money here. Perfect. Welcome. Perfect. Thank Good you. to talk to you. Welcome. Glad to have you here, Nick. Um, I would like to turn things over for a moment to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, who was the one who found your book and um, contacted you to get on the show here. And I'll tell you, I read it in the last week, and it is fascinating, great book, and we're looking forward to talking to you. Poor Stacky Botrys. It never meant any harm. Those black spores weren't made for flying around. Its spidery colonies evolved to munch outdoors. Other fungi, not humans, were the intended victims for its mycotoxins. One could pronounce similar innocence for the bacteria that cause food poisoning, black widow spiders, even grizzly bears. Although I have acknowledged the mold's nastiness, it's clear that Stachybotrys would have never made mention along these menaces in the media's top ten list of its bad biology without skillful marketing. Attracted to the title, I must confess, I found your book accidentally while searching on eBay. It was a pretty yep. interesting title. You know, as an adult learner, I want to know what's in it for me, and I want this information fast. You know, I must confess to buying a lot of books, which I start and never finish. Most of them are about business and science, subjects I admit to needing to know more about. You know, our guest today is Nick Money, Ph.D., Nick Money teaches in the Department of Botany at Miami University of Ohio. He's the author of Mr. Bloomfield's Orchard, The Mysterious World of Mushrooms, Molds, and Mycologists, and a new book, The Triumph of Fungi, A Rotten History. Uh, the book we're going to discuss today is Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, The Natural History of Toxic Mold. And I found the book to be a combination of history, science, practicality, and it was all woven together with humor. Well, welcome, Nick. First of all, what's a mycologist, Nick? Well, first of all, thanks for that wonderful review of the book. Well, thank uh, you. I can always use a, use a good plug. Um, you know, the fungi aren't the sexiest things to sell on, on, on bookshelves, but um, uh, I do my best. Yeah, you've done and, a wonderful uh, job. Well, what exactly well, is a mycologist? So mycologist, and there aren't that many of them, I think, in the whole world, is somebody that, that in, a, in a professional setting studies fungi and studies the biology of these organisms. Uh, do you think this is a growth field, a growth industry? How many students, uh, for instance, do you have in a mycology class that you teach? So, so actually, it's a, it's a field in some ways that, that's contracting. I mean, the, the kind of um, organismal biology that I studied years ago in, in, in colleges is not uh, taught on too many campuses today. So that, that's something actually at Miami University that we, we pride ourselves upon is that we actually still cover a, a good deal of this kind of organismal biology, just talking about groups of organisms and how they're related to one another and actually what they do in the natural environment. You know, whether or not anyone's ever told you this or not, but you really have a gift for taking things that are pretty technical and putting them into a term that 
just any reader you know, can understand. You know, some of the things that I found fascinating uh, in the book, one thing in particular, and I don't remember ever hearing this before, and Joe remembered hearing it, but he wasn't sure exactly where he heard it, was the fact of, that black mold utilizes a substance known as melanin as a sunscreen. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true, and there's a lot of these these dark pigmented fungi that, that use, it, it's not really one compound, there's a whole series of different melanins. I mean, we have melanin in our own skin, it's a somewhat different chemical, but the fungi, or many of them actually do use this as a sunscreen, and they'll actually use it as a natural barrier to, to other, to, to different substances too. It's a, it's a, it's a protective structure that, that forms within the cell wall of these, these dark pigmented fungi, including stachybotrys. Hmm. You know, a quote from your book, high-safe function as microscopic mining devices probing, penetrating, and thoroughly permeate solid materials and extract nutrients in their path. That's kind of a new way for me to look at my athlete's foot anyway. Yeah, and that's certainly what, it, what it's doing. I was just looking at some images the other day, actually, um, of, of fungi penetrating skin and nails, and it, it's really interesting to look at them forming these burrows within within our own tissues. It's uh, uh, alarming, I guess, certainly if it's your own tissues that these things are, are growing within. Well, speaking of alarming with that, I thought something called apoptosis was even more alarming. What does that word mean? Well, that's that's the technical term. Well, there's another technical term for that, which is programmed uh, cell death, and that's actually a natural part of of, of life. That um, uh, cells within our body and cells within other organisms actually die according to these genetically regulated programs, and that, that's a very very important part of of, of, of development, and it also in sort of day to day housekeeping within the human body. Amazing. You know, one of the things I think was interesting is, you know, we all know that there's two scoops of raisins in a box of raisin bran. I never realized that for every spore that was out there, there could be as many as 300 cell fragments floating around. Yeah, that's that's the the result of some really interesting work in the last few few years. That um, when you actually do do spore counts, so based upon indoor air sampling, you're only looking at a relatively small fraction of the number of particles that might be present in the, in the air, because when you when you pass air over a fungal colony, so something growing on a on a surface on drywall, for example. It seems, at least according to these studies, that these smaller particles are also getting getting into the air. And of course, it's possible that, that, that those particles can get into the uh, uh, nasal passages and, uh, and the lungs if um, people are in, in, the, uh, in that location. You know, one of the interesting things I thought also in the book was the fact that um, you brought up this theory, and I, I think it may be more than a theory because in the book you were talking about uh, discussing this with one of your business colleagues with the fact that certain insects could actually transport mold, including stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a poss possibility, although there's no um, really clear evidence for this at this, this point. Um, but it, it relates to this wider issue of actually how stachybotrys gets around. So this is the mold that, that um, is most interesting, at least in the courtroom. Uh, and yet it forms these big spores, and they they're formed in these sticky heads. And they're not easily aerosolized. They don't get airborne very easily um, because they're sticky and because they're heavy, relatively speaking. 
and and so this is an interesting issue about sort of the the ecology of the indoor environment and actually how these molds get around or specifically how stachybotrys gets around because it's it's kind of a sluggish thing not well designed for 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 moving around in the air you know one of the things i thought was interesting in the book also was were the number of history lessons uh, that were in it. You know, one of your quotes, you know, uh, in the beginning there was life. You know, the Bible is unassailably co- correct about that. Or, I'm sorry, I, I misquoted it. In the beginning there was no life. The Bible is unassailably correct about that. You know, you went through all these notable facts about Stachybotrys and provided the history of, uh, you know, when it was found, I believe, in Prague and then, uh, you know, in Russia killed a bunch of horses, and I thought one of the things that was interesting, and I'm not sure whether or not I got this correct, but, and please correct me, did you say in the book that there is no stachybotrys in the United Kingdom? Um, somebody told told me this um, recently that in, in some survey they'd actually never found this in in their studies of um, air sampling within homes. But since then I've come across reports. I mean, you do see it listed in in these in mold surveys. But it's certainly something that's not as common as it seems to be in in our homes. So I, I can't tell you that it's absent from from, from homes in, in in Britain. In fact, there's evidence now. Uh, to counter that, but it doesn't seem to be as be as common as we uh, as it is in in uh, the uh, lower 48. Hmm. Interesting. I think one of the things that I, I liked in the book was uh, the manner in which you chronicled, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I quote from the book: by the late 1990s, the media had elevated ubiquitous molds to the status of life-threatening microorganisms, whose appearance transformed homes, schools, and workplaces into toxic environments. Buildings needed to be tested, and toxic ones needed to be cleaned. These tasks were embraced by industrial hygienists who had dealt previously with IAQ problems before mold hit the headlines, and new job titles were printed on business cards. Mold inspector, mold contractor, mold remediator, a new industry was born. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there was just a frenzy of interest in this. I think in the early uh, early part of this uh, this millennium, I suppose I should say, shouldn't I? So um, after the um, record, what was it, $32 million judgment in Texas uh, that related to mold contamination of a home close to Austin. Yeah, and, and incredible, the uh, Melinda Ballard case. That's right, Melinda Ballard, yeah. Uh, one of the things that you've done in the book is you've provided some guidance to homeowners and also to remedial practitioners alike, and I'm sure that we might get some discussion on this in the future. Uh, your opinion that spore counts are next to useless for assessing many indoor mold problems, and unless a mold problem is likely to lead to a lawsuit, you're not convinced that anyone should pay a contractor to collect air samples and make moisture measurements. Uh, how would you suggest people that are going into these homes and inspecting ones gather their data. Are you a believer in surface sampling instead? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very, very complicated issue. It would take us longer than, you know, a few minutes to really, really get into into this. But I think that a lot of air sampling data have been misused, especially in, in the courtroom. Um, sometimes they're useful if, if you can actually conduct some air, air sampling and show the, that you've got a much, much higher concentration of spores in the indoor air versus the outdoor air, then that tells you that maybe you've got a source of of, of mold within the home that's, that, that's getting airborne, certainly you know, sort of supports that hypothesis. Um, but as I said, I think these data are sometimes um, overused and too much, much is made of them. 
surface sampling certainly certainly important, but I think most mold inspectors and IAQ specialists have, are also pretty good at just going into a home and figuring out pretty quickly if there's mold growing, visible mold, uh, and a lot of it, and, and whether or not that home is re going to require some kind of professional remediation. I mean, at, at this level, mycology really isn't anything close to, to rocket science. It's just uh, uh, you know, it's alarmingly obvious when you go into a home if it's got a really serious microbiological problem. Um, there's a statement in your book, and I'd like to know whether you stand by that statement. And the statement is, the mere identification of stachybotrys in a home doesn't mean the residents are in danger. Could you yeah, that's, abs that, that's absolutely true. And in fact, um, in the book, I talk about doing a, a, some mold sampling in, in, in my own home that's about 12 years old at, at this point and hasn't got any... Uh, water problem. Um, but uh, subsequently, I did find stachybotrys in my home. We've got a, a plant stand with a big plant pot on it, and my wife tends to overwater the plant, in my humble opinion. Hopefully, she isn't going to listen to this. Right. Mine, uh, mine neither. <laughs> but um, sure enough, underneath that, that pot, you can pick up stachybotrys, and um, you can see these jet black colonies. Um, you know, you can get close to identifying them without a microscope. They're really pretty distinctive. So, um, and certainly I wouldn't recommend evacuating my house or anything there just because of the mere presence of this organism. Oh, go ahead. Yes, Nick, this is Joe Hughes. I, Hi, Joe. I, I, hello, and uh, welcome. I, this has been fascinating, and I had a few quick questions I wanted to ask. Going back to what Cliff just asked, I did get the impression, however, that you don't, you're not a minimalist either in that you do feel there may be some issues with respect to too much stachybotrys within a home or too much mold in general rather than focusing on stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, think most physicians will, will agree that molds can, can stimulate allergic symptoms. So if you've got a lot of mold spores in a home, um, anybody that suffers from asthma or hay fever, uh, other, other allergies, you know, may have their symptoms exacerbated by the by the presence of mold um so that that's the first point to make um in terms of looking at stachybotrys specifically i still think there are some interesting studies out there and some unsolved cases that um give one cause for concern so if if there's a lot of growth of stachybotrys in a particular home i, th I think that really is something that that deserves some further study and some some caution um, so the most celebrated cases are those then out of um, Cleveland, Ohio in the 1990s and these um, infants that suffered from uh, lung bleeding. And that's really a, an unsolved medical mystery, I think, at this point. There's some people that stand by the, the claim that this was as a result of exposure to stachybotrys and other people that, that really refute this. So, um, I mean, it is a nasty organism, and, and certainly if there's a lot of it around in, in one's home, I think, I think one you know, should be prudent and use some caution and, and actually uh, seek to eradicate it. That's, that was one of several interesting uh, points that I, I picked up in the book. I guess my, one of the first questions I had was, how did you come up for the title for the book? And... It's carpet monsters and killer spores, a natural history of toxic mold. There's some wording in there that some of the um, industry gurus, for lack of a better uh, term, would find a, you know, a bit alarming, I guess. 
Yeah, I guess so. So the, a natural history of toxic mold really speaks to what's in the book. The, the carpet monsters um, part of the, the the title comes from my own childhood encounters with with mold. I was a pretty severe asthmatic as a kid, and I uh, uh, began to fantasize that there were actually these monsters in the carpeting and so forth that were causing me to feel so lousy and trying and, and stop stopping me from breathing. So that that's part of it. And I do talk about the uh, allergic effects of, of fungal spores. And uh, so what the other part of the title, the killer spores, I mean, certainly that's the way that the media uh, presented this um, in, in the earlier um, earlier years in this this decade I think well especially surrounding the Melinda Ballard case I mean 60 minutes and 2020 and so forth had uh, uh, exposés about mold and, and suggesting this was the you know the worst thing ever to happen to the United States but uh, so that's where I uh, get the killer spores uh, idea from that's that's interesting and I'd like to let our listeners know and uh, especially those of you that are associated with the uh, investigation and remediation of uh, microbial issues that um, the book is really not the typical scare tactic book that you might think of. It's really a very well-researched and thorough uh, review of the first mycology and then some of the history of the particular cases like the um, case of the problems that we had in Cleveland after the flooding with the potential for pulmonary hemorrhage and uh, then a discussion of the Ballard case and then following that you've got some other very interesting information about other types of molds that people don't always think of as molds in the last chapter. Could you talk to us a little bit about the dry rot and the wet rot that you discuss in the final chapter? Yeah, I mean, as a mycologist, I find these other fungi that grow in the indoor environment really um, very interesting. In fact, I've had a number of um, photographs sent to me uh, by email this year uh, of a fungus. It's a, it's a cup fungus. It's a thing called Pazyza that forms these these brown um, uh, cups, usually about an inch inch across. And I don't know because we've had a lot of rain this this summer, at least in the Midwest. Um, I think this thing's cropped up uh, in, in a number of homes, but uh, this is really pretty alarming when you look at it in bathrooms and you see whole walls covered with uh, with this particular fungus. And it probably doesn't cause any any uh, particularly negative health effects, um, but it's certainly unsightly and something that, that most homeowners are going to want to get rid of. Um, the other thing I talk about in the book, though, is this uh, the phenomenon of dry rot, which is... Um, particularly a problem in on the uh, the west coast um uh Los Angeles and so forth where they've seen a lot of cases of this uh fungus that uh destroys the the wood frame of a home even even under construction it's really pretty interesting cases and there's one particular contractor out there that's uh, really specializes in uh, uh dealing with this problem I would encourage anyone who is interested in that to pick up a copy of Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores and take a, a good look at that last chapter, if not the entire book. The last thing I wanted to ask was, I, as I read this and all the research that went into it and sort of following up on what we just discussed, how long did it take you to research and write this book? 
I think it was a, it was about a year's work from from start to finish to really research that, and I'm a fairly swift writer, so um, I was yeah, it's, a, it's about a year's work. And you um, have another one now that is coming out or is out. That's right. right. It's just just come out. It's just available on on Amazon for anybody that's interested, and it, it's um, that really deals with epidemic fungal diseases of um, trees and crop plants. Um, so this is really the field of plant pathology that I'm covering in in that book. Interesting. Well, the last thing that I had was a um, kind of interesting section of the book where you compared uh, Stachybotrys versus Staphylococcus aureus, and I hope I got the pronunciation right with my mycologist on the line. Could you uh, maybe review a little bit about what you wrote on those Two organisms. Yeah, I think there was um, so there was there was an interesting study um, where, where they compared the um, the total number of, of of injuries that could be tracked to Stachybotrys exposure, and then compared that to um, the, the effects of other microorganisms. Okay, and the point there of that study was to suggest that even in sort of the worst case scenario, that these these cases of lung bleeding. In, in Cleveland had been caused by Stachybotrys, that there are plenty of other microorganisms that, that we're, we're exposed to that cause you know, far greater injury and far more deaths each year. And so the, the point of that study was to really show that the, the, the media frenzy then surrounding the Ballard case was, really was a frenzy, and it was something that, that, that really was, uh, you know, the concern about indoor molds was really out of control, I think, for a while. And I do think that things have settled down more at this this point. Um, there seems to be a more measured approach to dealing with indoor indoor mold and indoor mold problems. And um, so I think that's uh, to the industry's credit that that, we, that we've gotten to this position today. Well, that's very encouraging. As members of the industry, uh, Cliff and I both are association. Uh, members, and I'm on the board of one of the uh, largest associations in the country that deals with Indoor Air Quality Association. Cliff is closely involved with several, and it's encouraging to hear someone like yourself that has the background you do in mycology uh, to to say that we uh, seem to be headed in, in the right direction. And uh, with that, what I'd like to do, if um, we still have other questions, but we have to move on. Is there a chance that we may have you join us in the future? No, I'd love to do this. It's really interesting talking to uh, people actually in the, in the industry rather than other, other mycologists. Um, this is what I really do as a consultant often in the courtroom is to try and just to, you know give some measured uh, treatment to this subject and explain to the jury really what fungi are and, and, and when they are a matter of concern and, and when they're not. And uh, I think it's important to get away from sort of just these, these kind of alarmist tactics that uh, prevailed for some years. And hopefully on the next show we'll have some more interaction. We've got quite a few people listening in, but not too many uh, calling or sending instant messages right now. But we're just getting started. That Sounds will change, good. Nick. Uh, Sounds very good. Thank you very much for right. uh, joining us, and we will look forward to talking to you again in the future. Well, let's just tell everyone again how to get the book. Uh, would you suggest that they do a search for you, Nick, uh, your name, Nicholas P. Money, M-O-N-E-Y, on 
uh, Google, and they'll be able to purchase it from Amazon. Is that the source yep. that you'd recommend? That's, that's probably the best best source is to just go to Amazon.com and type in Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores or type in my name, and they'll they'll come across the page for that book. Well, I wanted you to know that I gave your book a five-star rating. You can't get any better than that. I loved <laughs> it. And uh, what I'll do is I, I might mail it to you and get you to autograph it for me. I'd appreciate that. Well, very good. Very All right. good. Thank you, Okay. Bye. Bye for now. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was interesting. Our, before we move on to the next segment, I'd like to just quickly remind our listeners that today's show is sponsored by Indoor Environment Connections, ieconnections.com. They are uh, the newspaper for the indoor air quality industry, and uh, they do a tremendous job, and that leads me into the next guest we have hopefully on the line, Glenn Fellman. Um, Glenn, are you out there? Can you hear me? I can hear you fine, Glenn. Great to have you here. Glenn Fellman is the owner of Indoor Environment Connections and also the Indoor Air Quality Association's Executive Director. Glenn, um, I have heard you called the most knowledgeable person in the world about IAQ who has never taken a sample, performed remediation, or done any (laughs) IAQ field work. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's actually very accurate, I guess, Uh, at least me having not done those things. Uh, I have been involved with uh, the management of professional uh, trade associations, professional societies, and publishing related to the indoor environment since 1988. Um, I've been working with groups like the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, the Associated Air Balance Council, the National Air Filtration Association, um, National Coalition on Indoor Air Quality, uh, those during the first 10 years or so of my career. And then more lately, I've been working with groups like IAQA, the Indoor Air Quality Association, uh, the Indoor Environmental Standards uh, Organization, and, and quite a few others. So I've learned an awful lot about the the industry of indoor air quality and uh, also mold and mold remediation and uh, know a lot of the players in it and the programs involved with it, but it's true that I am not a practitioner. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I'd like to let our listeners know that I am a board member of the Indoor Air Quality Association and have worked closely with Glenn for the last three or four years now, but uh, couldn't think of a better guest to have on our first show. And uh, we want to welcome you again. And what I'd like to do, Glenn, is uh, turn things over to Cliff for a moment. He's got a few more questions he'd like to ask you, and uh, we'll get your opinion on what's happening in the industry today. Hey, Glenn, how are you? I'm doing great, Cliff. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I guess my first question is that the IAQA took a bold step at the beginning of the year by consolidating its membership with those of the American Indoor Air Quality Council and the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. How's the unification really going, and how has this changed the IAQA? Well, thanks. That's a great question. Um, the unification is going really well. We we um, took a I, I appreciate you calling it a bold step because it was a bold step um, uh, at the beginning of the year where we took three organizations in the industry, the, the uh, IAQ Council or American IAQ Council, uh, the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, and, of course, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and we consolidated the programs of the organizations together uh, to eliminate duplication and to provide the industry with better representation. 
All three associations had, had uh, certification programs and training programs and memberships prior to the unification. Afterwards, the three organizations still exist as separate entities, but they are segmented to do specific things. The IAQ Council is the certification body, and it just administers certification programs. That's its sole function. The Indoor Environmental Standards Organization is just what its name says, is a standard-setting body, and that's its sole function. And the Indoor Air Quality Association is the membership association, and we have training programs, publications, chapters, all the things that you typically associate with a, a, a trade group or professional society, including a, an annual convention. The actual work of, of consolidating it has been um, uh, very, very challenging. We've, we've tapped out the uh, resources of our staff and our volunteer network, to say the least. But it is going well, and we're pretty pleased with what we've seen in the way of results so far. In terms of how it's changed IAQA, um, well, our membership more than doubled. We now have uh, over 5,000 members, wow. and it's uh, made us into a you know, very dynamic organization. Also, the diversity of our membership has increased tr greatly because the um, IESO organization had a lot of people who were from the inspection field in their membership, and the IAQ Council had a lot of people in their membership who were from government agencies. And so adding those into what was already a 2,400-member organization really gives us a lot more, a lot more strength and diversity. Yeah, do you, you know, I've served in volunteer capacities with trade associations as well, and one of the challenges that we've had in my involvement with trade associations was that members do not, number one, realize what services are available, and number two, you fail to utilize those services that are available. Are there any benefits that you feel that your members of IAQA should take advantage of? Absolutely. Um, and associations are notoriously bad at, 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 at promoting their own benefits to their members, ironically. But uh, we have some benefits that um, are, are new to IAQA that are either a product of the, the unification or have come afterwards, which are really exciting. One of the ones which um, I think is, is probably the most um, immediately impactful on, on the industry is an insurance program that we've developed with uh, partners at a, a brokerage in, in California and with uh, a couple different insurance carriers where our members, whether they're doing assessment, remediation, or other types of IAQ work, can obtain uh, general liability and errors and omissions insurance that includes coverage for pollution like mold. And they can do it at rates that are uh, uh, significantly cheaper than, than what they can get on the open market. Now, there are some pre-qualifications. You have to, of course, be a member of our organization, and you also have to have people on your staff who are certified by the American IAQ Council, um, which is a, our independent certifying body and part of the unification. Some of the other programs we have that people, I think, you know, should take more advantage of, uh, one is our chapter workshops. We have 40 chapters across the country. Each one holds between two and four workshops a year. And this gives our members the ability to go someplace local for a half day. That we won't have to get on a plane. Don't have to, you know, miss too much time in the office. And it's great networking and, and great education. Um, other thing I think I would talk about is our career center. We have um, developed a career center on our website that lets people post resumes and job, um, you know, help wanted ads. And um, a lot of organizations do that type of thing. But within the IAQ field, it's really hard to, to find it. You, you, know, you don't find IAQ jobs listed on monster.com. So we've got um, a mechanism now where our members can find employees or if they're searching for a job, can find potential employers. 
you know, one of the things that I think this is beyond bold, uh, I would say that this decision probably had a tremendous amount of testosterone in it, which was the organization's decision to have all of its certifications third-party accredited. Um, what does this mean to the industry, and how does this compare to programs that would be offered by competitive organizations such as the IICRC and the ASCR? Sure. Well, it, it was a, uh, a tremendously bold move, and it, 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 it raised the bar, as they say, for certification for both um, IQ pr uh, assessment practitioners and for uh, remediators way above where it was previously. Um, the uh, IAQ Council has become a member of the um, Council of Scientific and Engineering Specialty Boards, also called the CESB. They are an organization that accredits a certifying body. And by accrediting a certifying body, what they do is they, they set standards for how a certification sh program should be run, and um, very, very vigorous standards, and then uh, an organization can apply to become accredited. Now, people may be saying, okay, what's the big deal about being a CESB accredited certifying body? You know, who knows what that is? Well, it's actually it is a big deal. Um, for instance, the Certified Industrial Hygienist um, uh, certification is CESB accredited. Likewise, the Certified Safety Professional, the CSP designation is CESB accredited. And it's not an easy thing to obtain, and, and you have to really, like I say, raise the bar on, on the um, requirements of your programs. So uh, the Council has, has one of its um, certification programs now CESB accredited. It's called the Certified Indoor Environmental Consultant. And it has made application to have all of its other certification designations accredited, and I believe that uh, will come up for a vote sometime at the beginning of 2007. What this means for people who hold a certification from the IAQ Council is that they have uh, basically a certification that's been accredited as having you know, the highest levels of integrity for a certification program, the, the highest levels of professionalism. It's, it's not unusual in most industries to have accredited certification bodies, but it is very unusual in the cleaning and restoration industries. None of the organizations that I've been able to identify, IICRC, ASCR, um, any of them that do certifications um, have uh, you know, this third-party accreditation of their certification programs to really validate them so that the consumers know, hey, this is a meaningful program. And if you let me go on for just another minute, sure, go ahead. the reason why I think it's, it's very, very important, uh, groups like IICRC and ASCR have very good programs. I know that because I know a lot of people have been through them, and I'm familiar with some of their inner workings, and I know they're excellent programs. But there's a lot of other types of, of associations and quasi-associations out there that are offering certification and training for mold remediation or IAQ professionals. And they're not as above reproach as IICRC or ASCR may be. And to a consumer, they just have no way of distinguishing which are the good ones and which are the bad ones. This third-party accreditation allows a certifying body to say, hey, we've let ourselves be independently examined. We've agreed to follow a uniform set of national standards. You know, our program is the best. Well, thank you, Glenn. In addition to being IAQA's executive director, you are also the publisher of Indoor Environment Connections, newspaper that's right today's uh, sponsor thank you and could you explain the relationship between the newspaper and IAQA I think sometimes people misunderstand what that relationship is sure I'm glad you asked the question too um, 
Uh, I own a company called Indoor Environment Communications. It's a publishing and management company. Uh, we do a variety of communication services, and we work with a few different nonprofit um, uh, associations. We also have a publishing division that publishes Indoor Environment Connections newspaper. Uh, the newspaper uh, was started in 1999, and I became involved as a, a staff member and executive director of IAQA in 2000. And when I came on board, we um, agreed to make uh, a free uh, subscription to the newspaper, a part of the member benefit package to belonging to IAQA. And that's really helped both organizations out. It's helped my company in that we uh, have a very dedicated readership, and it's helped the newspaper to grow. And it's helped IAQA in that it provides a member benefit in the form of a, a newspaper subscription that you know normally would cost uh, around $72 a year. So there, um, there's a lot of news that comes out in IE Connections that's related to the Indoor Air Quality Association because the, the newspaper focuses on the indoor air quality industry, and obviously IEQA is a big part of that industry. All right. Cliff has another question for I've you. I've got a question for you, Glenn. And, you know, one of the things about the program is we appreciate you coming on with us. And, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, you know, we need to add, ask a tough question. And we really had two for you. One, Joe just answered or uh, placed it and you answered uh, eloquently in terms of the relationship between indoor environmental connections and the IAQA. The one that I have for you is uh, – really coming from another organization. You know, you've been accused of taking cheap shots at the IICRC, especially with respect to their publication of standards last year. Uh, would you like to comment on these accusations? Wow, cheap shots. I'd like to know who accused me of that. Um, I, I, would, I do not think I've taken any cheap shots. We've, we've published um, a lot in our paper about IICRC and their standard-setting work. Uh, especially uh, giving them a lot of attention since they became a ANSI member and an ANSI-accredited standard-setting body. Now, I, I should preface this by saying that my involvement with IICRC dates back um, to uh, the 1990s. Um, actually, up until um, a couple months ago, my name was in every edition of every IICRC standard as the technical editor. And uh, I, I stopped doing technical editing for IICRC last year, and so when they brought out their new S500 standard this year, my name wasn't in it. But um, I wrote a publisher's message about the S500 standard when it came out because it was stunning news to everybody who heard it. When the new edition of S500 came out this year, it was following a 30-day public review period that was posted um, on the ANSI website. Nobody commented during that 30-day public period. And the reason why is because nobody, myself included, knew that the IICRC S500 standard was available for public comment. And when I say nobody, I mean literally nobody. I, I, spoke, I spoke to the editors of the top four industry trade journals. I talked to Cleaning and Restoration. I talked to Mold and Moisture Management Magazine, ICS, and Clean Facts. Talked to their editors and publishers. Nobody on their staff had was aware of the fact that the industry could comment on the S-500 standard. So when the uh, comment period closed, uh, IICRC went back to ANSI, said, we got no comments, uh, we would like to have this approved, and it was approved. And it, it did follow the ANSI process, but I think it, it didn't follow the spirit of the process. Um, the spirit of the process is to encourage and promote public comment and peer review, and I don't think, I think it was a little disingenuous uh, the, the first time around. Now, after that's happened, we know that IICRC is now working on their next standard, the S520. And 
uh, we started watching the ANSI uh, notices every week, and when uh, we got notice that S520 came out for public review, uh, we published word of that in our newspaper, and we also made the members of the Indo Air Quality Association aware of it. And uh, this resu has resulted, my understanding is, in over 300 people uh, affiliated with IAQA signing up to comment on the S520 document. That's how it's supposed to work. Right, that's, how an ANSI, that's how an ANSI standard is set. You get peer review, you get public review, and you get a, a much better standard as a result. Now, I will say that I, I think, you know, knowing the culture of standard-setting work that existed prior to IICRC getting ANSI accredited, um, I can see that they're making great strides to, to work within the new procedures that they're bound by as an ANSI standards-making body. And it's not an easy transition. It's, it's really going from, from, from one extreme to the, to the other, so to speak. And, um, and I do see you know, a, a very conscientious effort being made by IICRC leaders to get in step with what the program requires. But with the S-500, um, I just couldn't let that one go. And so I did publish a message on it. And, and, and I don't think it was a cheap shot at all. I think it was, it was calling a spade a spade. Um, after well, that, if you talk about spade a spade, uh, what about calling an IEP an IEP? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, a, that's another one. I mean, you know, here we've got a situation where, you know, uh, they own the trademark or, or have applied for the trademark on IEP and Indoor Environment Professional. And by they, I mean IICRC. Right. And in their patent and trademark office application, it, they have as a specimen a three-page, very detailed description of a certification program for indoor environment professionals or a registration program for indoor environment professionals. And they've used the same term within the standard, which, you know, to me means that the standard will essentially um, sort of de facto say you've got to be an IEP or an IICRC certified IEP to, to work in compliance with the standard. At least that's how a lot of people interpret it. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether that's, you know, some, uh, violates an anti-rule or not, but it, 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 it rubs the wrong way for a lot of people. I'm sure that it does. And I think as a matter of disclosure, I need to disclose the fact that I currently am serving on the board of directors of the IICRC. Uh, I represent a regional trade association, uh, Tri-State Cleaning and Specialty Cleaners Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And I would like to add that we certainly welcome any other representatives from the IICRC to come in or from other associations. We're looking for this type of interaction. Glenn, we are running a little over. I have one more quick question for you. The IAQA annual meeting and exposition is taking place in Nashville in October. Why should our listeners attend the meeting? If you can do it in a minute or less, I'd really appreciate it, Glenn. All right. A uh, hundred product uh, exhibits, the largest single IAQ expo ever. Uh, over 36 technical sessions, all of our speakers are PhDs, CIHs, CIECs. They're the best in the industry. We've got four workshops at the conference. They're uh, three-hour or half-day workshops, marketing IQ products and services, standards and guidelines for the industry, um, health, uh, health effects of poor IQ, um, just great stuff. We've got a three-hour building sciences workshop with Joe Steebrook. We've got a four-hour workshop with Claudia Miller from University of Texas Health Science Center. It's the, simply the best IAQ convention program I've ever seen, and that's uh, October 25th to 28th in Nashville, and you can get information at uh, iaqa.org. Well, I will look forward to seeing you there, and I thank you very much for joining us today, yeah, Glenn. You're, you're going to be live at our convention doing IAQ Radio. Is that uh, the plan? That's the plan. We are.
working on IAQ Radio from the convention. Well, great. Well, maybe I'll get a chance to say hello to your listeners again then. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. All right, bye-bye. We have, I believe, our technical advisor on the line here. I'd just like to quickly say hello if uh, Dr. Dietrich Weil is out there. Dieter, are you on the line? Uh, yeah. Can you hear me? We can hear you just fine, Dieter. Oh, my. When, when we sent out the emails for uh, the show, I had quite a few responses saying that uh, people were looking forward to hearing your voice again. Uh, yeah, so I, I had some problems signing in here on the on the computer. Uh, the, one of the pages didn't get displayed, but what the heck. When you pay your phone bill, uh, that's generally <laughs> not a problem. <laughs> well, Dieter, we have another guest on the line, but if you could stay with us, and if you'd like to Absolutely. Uh, ask a question or After, chime in, yep. please feel free. After tennis and oral surgery, I'm still fine. You're still hanging in yep. there. All <laughs> right. Dieter will still be out there teaching, and we hope to have him at the conference as well if we can pull him away from tennis and uh, get him over surgery. surgery. (laughs) (laughs) I give that one up easily. Well, thank you, Dieter. uh, We'll get back to you in a moment here, but we also have on the line our third guest, I do believe Mr. Tom Yacobellis, the founder of DuckBusters, which has now merged into DuckZ, making it the largest duck cleaning firm in the United States with close to 50 offices is on the line. Tom, are you there? I am. Tom, great to have you. How you doing? Excellent. How are you, sir? Good. How you doing, Cliff? Good. Where are you talking to us from today, Tom? Tampa, Florida. Okay, cool. So you're home today or at the office? Or? Yep. Good. Good. At the home office today. You're my hero, man. <laughs> you're my hero. Cliff has a couple questions sure, I have for some you. questions for you. I heard that you did a bunch of duck cleaning uh, in New Orleans in a, in a number of schools post-Hurricane Katrina, and I just had a number of questions for you. Well, first of all, what role or roles did your company play? Were you a service provider? Were you a general contractor, subcontractor, specifier? What did you do? Well, just immediately after Katrina, uh, around December, we went, we mobilized uh, uh, several of our offices. I think it was seven of our offices to go down and handle uh, emergency cleanup of Tulane University. We were a subcontractor under Belfour, uh, which is a national restoration firm. International. Yes, they're quite they're quite large, and they're they're also highly organized. And we worked underneath them to clean 32 buildings at Tulane University in about a month. Um, after we finished that process, um, we pulled out for a while. Um, and just recently got called back in to do some emergency rapid response projects for uh, for the three schools, uh, two elementary schools and a high school, uh, so the kids could get back into school. And the, the school system in New Orleans is, is unique. Some schools are owned by the city, some schools are owned by the state. And in order for the rebuilding process to start, we really – have to get the kids back into the schools, otherwise the families aren't going to move back to the communities. So we received a call last week on on this second project. On I think we received a call at Friday about four o'clock. We had our group on the ground. Uh, our management team was on the ground on Saturday, and we had 35 people um, 
ready for work Monday morning at 7 o'clock, and we completed the cleaning of the schools by Friday of that week. Wow. Did you have to work 24 hours a day or in order to get this done, or can you do one shift a day? No, we were we worked with large crews and uh, long shifts is what we did. There was lots of logistical problems. There wasn't electricity in some of the schools, and the windows were wide open, and the schools were still open, and painters were going on, and there was a whole bunch of other trades in there working at the same time. What sort of equipment did you utilize, truck-mounted or portable for the vacuum systems, or did you use a combination of both? In this type of cleaning, we used all portable, although, in the, you know, when you're working down in New Orleans right now, it's it's really an unusual environment to work at, especially for someone who, you know, who sets standards and, and tries to adhere to the the best way of doing things. But the outside air in, in New Orleans is still uh, still has high levels of contaminants in it, and, and many of these facilities, uh, the windows are either gone or open. So usually the the equipment that we're using is HEPA filtered, and that's the equipment we used here. We use that to protect the indoor environment and to capture any particulate while we're doing our process. But in this particular case, the buildings are open to the environment anyway. So uh, we we still went through the same safety protocols, but I don't know if they were that necessary with the way that the jobs occurred. Yeah, I think you know, going back, how did you protect your work? Like, you know, you've gotten paid to clean this air handling system. It's cleaned. Uh, it may have been sanitized or you know cleaned thoroughly. How do you protect it from getting recontaminated if the windows are open and you know the building is not secure? I mean, do you cover it with plastic or yeah, what do you? Yeah, we, actually, we do, and it's it's interesting that you bring it up because it is actually a new dynamic a little bit about. Um, how important a visual inspection is. In this particular case, visual inspections and pictures become paramount um, the, because we know if we've taken it, all the contaminants off the surfaces and if we've wet washed the coils and the blowers and all the components of the mechanical unit, I mean, this is where all the air passes by, that if we've physically cleaned everything, that's going to be a definitive uh, criteria for, for cleanliness. Hmm. Now, when we... The, the fear of sealing these units off, by the way, like as you said, is is that the humidity is still high up in that area, and you don't want to be trapping in, the, uh, completely trapping into the environment, you know, the moisture that's inside the mechanical system so that mold might reoccur inside there. Yeah, just one warning to you. We were I remember doing a job we were doing at a VA hospital here. We were cleaning the ductwork and they required uh, visual inspection. They had a superintendent that would go around with us, and they wanted it videotaped. And what we didn't realize is that the videotape would also record the voice of our employees, and they said some pretty embarrassing (laughs) things (laughs) while they were there. So you want to just be sure that you turn the sound off. Cliff, that's why as soon as we buy our video cameras, we go in and clip the the microphone wires. Yeah, that's that's smart, man. That's smart. And, you know, the funny thing was you may have already given it to me. You know, one of the things that I was going to do is I I know that you are really the guru when it comes to air duct cleaning and have had a patent on it in terms of a process and really someone who has been devoted to doing this type of work ever since I've known them. And one of the things I was going to do is I knew that you had many trade secrets and you really were a person of mystery. And I was wondering if I could get one trade secret from you, uh, you know, for cleaning ductwork. And you may have just given it to me that if you've got a video camera, clip the microphone. But if you want to give us another one, uh, we'll take it. Well, you know, there, 
Here's the biggest trade secret of all. Okay. Uh, persistence and perseverance is what gets these systems clean. This is extremely difficult work to do. I, and I mean that so deeply from my heart. Uh, the workers that come down here are not – many of the folks in our organization own their own companies in their local markets. So these are not young people coming in in some cases. These are mature people who own their own businesses who are coming in because they want to learn more, do the right thing. They want to learn in the team environment. And this is the, one of the reasons why we, we merged our company with uh, Ducks International, which is a – which is a member of SBI, Service Brands International, who has over 800 uh, uh, franchises. Franchises, and, right. I'm familiar with them. And, and the reason why we did this is because the labor force out there is it's a very difficult labor force to find competent people to pull together in a 24-hour period who can get, take the instructions, take the directives, and get the work done immediately. And so the way our system works, the way our entire national company works, is that we set people up in business all over the United States to profit from their local markets and, and assist in improving the indoor air quality in their local markets. And then when something like Katrina occurs, we can put a call out to 50 offices right now and say, we need a response to this. How many people could be there by Monday? And we can get 30 competent people who are ready to go, who know what they need to do, have been trained for years, and so we don't have to go through all of the processes that so many people go through down at, in, with Katrina or any of these emergency responses where where the communication is lacking. Hmm. I've got, you know, having a chemical interest, I'd like to know just generally what types of chemicals uh, did you utilize within these systems? Did you use detergents? Did you have to do any wet cleaning? Did you have to uh, clean the coils? Uh, you know, did, did you use an acid or a non-acid coil cleaner? Did you do encapsulation? Did you do sanitizing? You know, what sort? Tell me about the chemistry of the cleaning processes that you did down there, or whether it was mixed. Well, in this particular case, uh, we were handed a scope of work and what we should do. And in that situation, of course, we always try to advise our clients if we think something isn't being done correctly or in accordance with one of the national standards. But we always use t detergent-based cleaners to clean the mechanical systems. And in general, it takes, with systems that are this dirty and this old, it, it takes at least three times to clean these mechanical system coils with pressure-washing devices. Generally, we'll be using uh, coil cleaners that are on the alkaline side. Okay. Uh, and 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 generally, if they're this impacted, we will use what's called a foaming coil cleaner, which uses uh, sodium hypochlorite and activates and pushes the dirt out of the coil. Mm -hmm. However, whenever you have mechanical systems that are this old, the coils will never come 100% clean. They just simply will not. Uh, the theory of the – and we're not just cleaning at this point, Cliff. We're really restoring the mechanical Absolutely. systems. Absolutely, yeah. And what what's happening <clears> – <throat> what happens is we can get done uh, trying to restore a coil after – usually it'll take about five or six hours, and we'll, <clears throat> we'll get done trying to restore the coil, and there might still be attached particulate on it or what we call adhered particulate in the, in the industry. But the theory behind this is, is if the if the mechanical system coil was plugged, uh, you know, let's just say 95%, and you brought it back, you restored it back to where it only had about 3% in the 
and it, it's such a significant difference that it, it really makes them, it'll have a major impact on indoor air quality. So you're measuring the pressure drop before and after. That's incredible. That's good. Yes. And, but one of, the, one of the issues, though, of course, is if it's done improperly, and we actually had a big problem. There was another duct cleaning company uh, down in the New Orleans area, and um, it, the project that they were doing, really, they didn't know what they were doing. And they got themselves in a lot of trouble. They got behind schedule. Um, and uh, we're, we've been called back in to redo uh, one of those schools now, which we're going to be re, uh, remobilizing probably in another week or so. But what happens is many of these duct cleaning companies, they become overwhelmed with the magnitude of these projects. Uh, for example, you mentioned coating. Well, <clears throat> Coating is a product, it's, it, for most people, they think in terms of it like a paint-like product that is put, applied to the duct surfaces after we get done removing the dirt and the contaminants because many of the, many of the duct surfaces uh, are, are fiberglass, and, and the fiberglass tends to get damaged or eroded in some way, and they make products that you can place inside duct systems. But these products are expensive, and they also are difficult to apply in very small ducts. Um, what this particular contractor did is they essentially just went in and they thought, well, we can save time and money. And so, you know, who, who's going to notice? This is New Orleans anyway. <clears throat> and quite frankly, a lot of the quality control in this business comes down to the ethics and the morality of the people running the company. But they just decided to paint over the dirt. Um, and so the dirt that was remaining there was just simply painted over in many areas. And it's a shame because uh, these schools are, you know, we feel very strongly that we're trying to do the right thing for the children of New Orleans. We want to make sure that the anything that we touch is is absolutely done correctly. Well, that leads me to a question. Tom, I, I see these ads all the time. Fifty nine ninety nine, sixty nine ninety nine. Have the ducts in your home cleaned for I've seen them as low as thirty nine ninety nine. What can I expect for thirty nine ninety nine or even ninety nine ninety nine for in with respect to having the ducts in my home cleaned? Well, I guess it's what you can expect from any market that has a low price involved in it. Uh, you know, one of the issues in, in any emerging industry, there's always people going to be coming in that think they know what they're doing, and then there's people that are going to be coming into the industry that simply are in it for the money. And it happens with virtually every industry. Stand by one second. Yes. Dr. Wow, are you still there? I'm still phone. here. Great. I've got to switch phones over there. Tom's switching phones, and if you have a question for Tom when he's done with this one, we'll finish up with that. You know, after, Joe, after doing it for 20 years, um, you know, a lot of our offices, when they get set up in the community, send us these ads. And we're just not in that business. We're not in the business of competing with someone who's cleaning off air conditioning registers for a living and taking people's money. The, if you understand what, why we do what we do, we clean mechanical systems and restore them so that we can give people an opportunity to to see whether those whether contaminants in that mechanical system was affecting their health health we don't make any promises or we don't make any claims that it will or will not all we say is is that the mechanical system by the manufacturer's specifications is supposed to run in a clean continuous operation 
the systems that we come across have been dirty for five, six, ten years. And so the systems that we're restoring really require a good deal of time with dismantling of the components to bring them completely back to the way they were supposed to be. It simply cannot be done quickly. We find that most of the customers that use us, because they're really calling us for indoor air quality reasons, and they really do have issues, that they usually can see right through the fact that they know they're not going to get what they're looking for for $89. But as a final comment to this, I will tell you, the Environmental Protection Agency, I did a study with them years ago on this, and they wrote a document called Should You Have the Air Ducts in Your Home Cleaned? And it was, there were some good things in it, and there were some not-so-good things in it. But one of the things that they placed in the document was that a low-cost duct cleaning probably means you're going to get a bad job. Uh, a high-cost duct cleaning doesn't mean you're going to get a great job, but a low-cost duct cleaning probably means you're going to get a, a bad job. And there's one problem with that in our industry. Now, what we tell people is, you know, if you have a fan that was running and you and you just never dusted the fan off and it was just running for a couple of years and it was full of dust, as long as that fan continued to run, most of the dust would not dislodge. But if you go in there and you hit the fan and you just start to dislodge some of the dust, you're going to have a condition now where the particulate in the room itself is going to rise up, at least for a period of time, because you, you've started to disrupt only part of the dust. In this business, once you start to disrupt the contaminants inside a mechanical system, you have to finish the process all the way. Otherwise, we actually can contaminate the indoor environment if it's not done correctly. So what we're trying to do now, Joe, is we're trying to, of course, we, you know, Duckbusters originally had 33 offices and Ducks had 15 offices. We've combined now. The new company name is Ducks with our famous Duckbusters logo that we've had for so many years, and that new company is going to try to build a national footprint for people who believe in the same thing we do, which is quality first above all else. And how do we, how do uh, listeners or consumers reach Ducks? Uh, just simply go into the website, ducksductz.com, uh, and, and uh, the phone numbers are listed there for the people in their offices, or they can call the 1-800 number, and they'll be directed to where they need to go. We are a little bit over, Tom, but I have a question from a listener here. And, yeah. Um, at what point do you decide the HVAC ductwork actually needs to be replaced? And I, they didn't specify whether it was uh, interior line duct or, you know, uh, flex duct, but uh, maybe you could just touch base with us on your response to those types of situations. Well, the metallic ductwork almost never needs to be replaced unless it's improperly sized for the unit. So from an engineering standpoint, as long as it's not rusted, it can be reconditioned really pretty much back to new. Fiberglass ductwork or, or fiberglass insulation type ductwork, that would be metal with internal insulation or fiberboard liner. If it becomes wet and has, has microbial growth on it, several standards say it should be replaced at that point. Um, and we agree with that, of course. Uh, but uh, recently there has been some talk about if, if fiberglass gets wet and actually gets dried out in a short period of time, that it, you may be able to preserve it. Plus, if fiberglass begins to start degrading or if the original installation was such that it was in horrible shape to begin with, then at that point it would be worth replacing. There is one last thing I'd like to say on this. In many commercial projects we do, uh, sometimes we have engineers saying that flex duct cannot be cleaned. And that is not true at all. 
Uh, flex duct can be cleaned quite effectively. However, the cost of replacing flex duct in many cases or the cost of cleaning it or restoring it is not worth the uh, amount of labor that it would take to just simply replace it. So flexible duct can be cleaned, but it, quite often it might be just worth replacing it anyway. I've got one question for you, Tommy. I've got someone that called me about uh, an air duct uh, problem the other day, and I was wondering whether or not you have an office in Arizona. No, I okay. do not. No problem. And Dr. Wild, did you have anything you'd like to add or ask our guests? No, not really. Um, I, I was listening, and um, air duct cleaning is one of those subjects. I, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert at that. I have heard about it. I have seen it done. I have heard people talk about it, <clears throat> and uh, but no, not really. Well, thanks. Well, for... may, maybe I have one question. Okay. Uh, the um, there is a standard a standard out that mandates, not mandates, but suggests to do um, dust sampling uh, in a cleaned air duct to uh, make sure that it is indeed um, cleaned. In other words, you do a micro vacuum cleaning in the duct. Is that done routinely or is that still ignored let's put it that way <laughs> it is it, it is um that is known as the nadka vacuum test that is correct yes which is in the nadka standard and it is not done routinely it is a final clearance if there is a dispute on a job um about 19 i think in the in the 2002 version of the nadka standard we realized that most people would look in a duct to determine, and I'm talking about third-party consultants, Okay. will look in a duct to determine if they feel that it's clean. And even though we had written this very elaborate criteria that could be used, it wasn't being used commonly. So um, on the 2005 version of the standard, we added in a what we call the surface comparison test. And what okay. that was is simply... Instead of going right to this advanced test, what you do is you take a contact vacuum, that would be a regular round canister vacuum with this round brush on it, and a consultant would actually re-vacuum a surface that you had already said was clean four times. And if there was a and this is specifically for fiberglass actually, and if there was any alteration in the surface characteristics from a visual standpoint, that was what they would deem to pass or fail. I see. That's interesting. Yeah. The test is still in place. It still is the final test for metallic ductwork. But as you said, the the practical in-field test is really to actually just, you know, you want the consultant to look at it, analyze it. The, the, the one issue that was with the test was it was taking too long to get the results back before the air conditioning systems could be put back in order. Uh-huh. Well, Good question. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is. It is interesting. So on one hand, the human eye... <laughs> of, a, of a good consultant is okay, and mm -hmm. this one is really a test to say, hey, he said, to me it doesn't look clean, maybe to you it looks clean. Now we're going to do a gravimetric test and see how much dust is left. That is right. And I then that, that, that gravimetric test can actually be done, could, you could use the lifted sample from that if you had wanted to do further speciation of what was there. I see. Mm hmm. That's interesting. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Wow. Your, uh, Dietrich, your input is always quite interesting, and well, uh, certainly we we uh, encourage it on all of our shows here. Cliff Tommy, wanted to but, finish but, one thing. Tommy, the, before, before you hang up, I just wanted to tell you that I've known you for a long time, and 
I've always admired your passion, and I wanted to personally thank you for your many years of industry dedication oh, and thank service. Thank you, Cliff. I we feel appreciate it. I feel I, um, about you guys. I'd like to second that, Tom. Um, Tom has a an incurable disease called volunteeritis, <laughs> and um, if you'd like to read more about it, I, I believe there's a site on the web that uh, discusses it, but I don't know if I'll give that. Uh, maybe you can email me privately, and we'll, we'll give you that site. <laughs> Tom, Joe, thank thanks again. So, Joe, thank you so much. Thank you, Cliff. Thank You're you, welcome. everyone. Thanks, All thanks right. Doc. Okay. Right, have a good one. Bye. Good night. Take care, Tom. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Uh, Tom, or Dieter, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, not really. Thank you for helping us out here again Pleasure. today. I'm looking forward. When is your next show? We'll be on every Friday, every Friday. at noon. So Friday at noon. All right. Next week at noon. Thanks for asking. And uh, we'd like to once again thank our primary sponsor this week. That was Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the indoor air quality industry at ieconnections.com. And if you would like more information about the show or how to get certification renewal credits for the show, you can email me directly at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. We also would accept any suggestions that you would have as far as material that we cover on the show or guests or things that you'd like to hear about. Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to sign off. This is Radio Joe and Cliff Z signing off until next Friday. Thank you all. See you next time. Bye.